Matthew chapter 13. We are continuing on in our study of uh, the kingdom of God. And uh, as I think I've said before, I said it before we prayed, uh, uh, it doesn't get taught much, the kingdom. It's not a subject that you hear a lot of people preach about. And uh, But the Lord spent quite a bit of time teaching about the kingdom. And so we have looked at uh, the kingdom par parables. We've looked at four of them already. The first one was the parable of the seed and the sower. And the second one is the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the number three was the parable of mustard seed. And number four? Eleven. Now, if you just look at those four parables, do you get the kind of the picture that uh, it's sort of a, a n not a very optimistic picture that Christ is, is painting? Because, you know, you've got the seed and the sower, and this man goes out and he sows his seed, and, and only one quarter of the seed that's sown is going to land on good ground. And three-quarters of it is going to be sown either in stony ground or in thorny places or in the wayside. And, and, uh, and so that's not real positive and optimistic. And then you've got the second parable with the wheat and the tares. And, you know, the tares are right there in amongst the wheat. And they, 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 they gobble up the resources of, in the ground that would make the wheat healthier. And they... They, they, uh, you can't root them out because then you'll tear up wheat as well. Because, of course, we can't tell wheat from tear. And so, if we went on, if we became truth detectives, you know, as it were, uh, trying to go around and find out who's really saved and who's not saved, we do as much damage as we would good. Because you can't, I can't look into anybody's heart, and there are people. There are people who got a King James Bible in their lap and they got the right haircut and they're wearing the right clothes and they're in church every time the doors open and they're not saved. Because they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in the good clothes, the nice clothes they wear. They're trusting in all the right things that they do and all the bad things that they don't do. And for, for them, the basis of their salvation is exactly what Christ condemned in Matthew chapter 7. They're saying, Lord, Lord, look at all the wonderful works we've done in and, and look at all the things that we've done for you. And the basis of their salvation is not, is not God's grace received by faith. It's what they have done and continue to do. And so there are plenty of people in independent fundamental Baptist churches that think they're saved because they look really good. On the other hand, you could go into some Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches and you can find... Uh, people that are, you know, listening to some really bad music in those churches, and they got an NIV Bible in their lap, but they got saved by grace through faith. And so, uh, uh, that's that's just the truth of it. That doesn't mean that that uh, all of their doctrine is correct. It doesn't mean that uh, they're doing everything that pleases the Lord. But they got saved, and we look at Lot. And, and we say, man, there's no way that, that guy was saved. Look at him. He's living with the, you know, he's living in San Francisco there. He's got queers for neighbors. And, and he, his 
that's where he chose to raise his kids and and but yet the Bible calls him in three different places a righteous man and I think that the Bible calls him you know in those three places the Bible calls him a righteous man simply to point out to us that that salvation isn't about what we do or don't do it's about receiving believing the Word of God and receiving the grace of God by faith but when you are saved then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God then you can walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh and so uh, I think uh, when you look at the parables these four parables and the kingdom and you certainly see that the kingdom is is not something that can be easily uh, the those who are in it be easily identified uh, for what they really are and uh, a lot of people they take that parable of the mustard seed and the parable of eleven and they try to say oh it's about the, the pervading influence of the church and eventually the whole world is going to be saved and, that certainly isn't consistent with what the Bible teaches, because the Bible teaches that in the end times the love of many is going to wax cold, and that false teachers are going to rise, and and, uh, and there's going to be a falling away, not not a not not the world becoming more and more Christian, and uh, so yes, it it does. When you study the kingdom, then you have to say that you know. It, it, it's kind of a pessimistic uh, a picture until you come to this point. These, these last uh, few parables, they paint, they paint a more optimistic picture. And we're going to study those today. Hopefully we'll get done. Verse 44. Um, Brother John, would you read uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which, when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. Now, I think that we should look at these parables chronologically, the, the kingdom parables, or at least that they, they portray uh to us what the kingdom is like chronologically here and it starts out with uh, the man who is christ sowing the seed which is the word of god and and it goes all the way till when we get to the uh, parable of the dragnet that's very clearly the end times it, it says so and uh, so you have the, from the preaching of christ all the way until uh, the tribulation period or the second coming of christ and uh, uh, look at it look at it that way but if things look pessimistic um, you know and it, it seems maybe that Satan has the upper hand in this cosmic conflict that's going on in the world between God and, and Satan we just need to read a little bit further because these uh, parables which are a description of the kingdom of God uh, give us insight into Christ's kingdom at the end of this age and at the end of this age, this New Testament church age of, of, of grace, however uh, people want to uh, label it, uh, three different groups are going to enter the Millennial Kingdom of Christ. Do you know those three groups? 
three groups in, this, in the biblical yeah. sense? Or? Yes, three groups. Three groups. The, the Bible teaches that there will be three separate groups that will enter the uh, the Christ Millennial Kingdom. Let's just go. The first is is the Jews. Because we know that the Jews are not all going to be killed during the tribulation period. They're going to be protected. And Christ is going to come back and he's going to rescue and save them. Then, according to Zechariah chapter 12, they're going to see Christ. They're going to recognize him as the Messiah. They're going to know that the one that they crucified, that their fathers or their ancestors crucified, and that they rejected, is the Savior. And, uh, and they're going to turn to him then. So that there's the Jews. And, and Christ's kingdom is going to be centered in Israel. His throne is going to be in Jerusalem. And uh, the whole world will basically look to Jerusalem. And then, then the second group, you remember in Matthew 25, there was, uh, there was a judgment of sheep nations and goat nations, right? So uh, that... Judgment tells us that the goat nations are the ones that opposed Israel, did nothing to help Israel, in fact, assisted in the persecution of Israel, and uh, they, they are going to be judged for that. But there are sheep nations, there are nations which uh, helped Israel. And I, I think what it's going to be is, in some nations, uh, enough people are going to get saved during the tribulation period through the preaching of those two evangelists, which I personally think are, are going to be um, Enoch and Elijah. Uh, some people think Moses and Elijah, but I, I think it's going to be Enoch and Elijah because they're the two that didn't die. Um, and uh, one is before the law and one is after the law. And uh, I think that's just my personal opinion. I'm not dogmatic about it, but they're going to get saved through the because those guys are going to have a worldwide audience for sure. And among those who are going to be saved th through the preaching of those two witnesses early in the tribulation period will be the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And they're going to go all over the world preaching Christ, and millions of Gentile people are going to get saved. And so there's going to be these Gentile sheep nations that these people were not saved before the tribulation period began or they would have been raptured, right? But, but because they uh, got saved during the tribulation period, some of them are going to survive the horrors of the tribulation period. They will go into the Millennial Kingdom as members of different nations, these sheep nations. And uh, then obviously the third group is going to be New Testament believers. Um, and we will already have been raptured, but, but uh, I think that we'll still be included in the, uh, in, uh, the bride of Christ. And we'll, the Bible teaches in, the New, in several places in the New Testament that uh, disciples of Christ will have administrative roles in the Millennial Kingdom. And uh, so those are the, the three groups. And I think those three groups are addressed in these parables. And the first parable is the parable of the hid treasure. Now, we have pointed out several times that typically speaking, uh, the land speaks of what group of people? Israel. Israel. And the sea speaks of Gentiles. Gentiles. 
So the first of these king, three kingdom parables is a treasure hidden in a field. I've got, I've got an awful lot of commentaries on Matthew in my library, probably 30, 40 books on And the common interpretation, by far, is something to the extent of, you know, the, the treasure that this man finds in the field is Christ. And, uh, and even though uh, the people who uh, advance that interpretation would strenuously object to any notion that salvation can be purchased, they still say that it's not talking about purchasing salvation. The guy finds the treasure, which is Christ in the field, and so he sells all that he has, and, and then he buys it. And it's talking about the value. It's, but I think that's nonsense. Uh, no matter how you uh, play around with semantics or change meaning of words, it still comes down to your purchasing your salvation, if, if, if the treasure is Christ. But... We can let Scripture interpret itself, right? All you have to do is, is take a Strong's exhaustive concordance of King James Bible and look up the word treasure. And you, you know what you're going to find? Let's look at a couple of places. Um, Exodus 19, verse 5. Because this is what I did. Exodus 19 and verse 5, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Boy, that's pretty plain and easy to understand. Uh, there's, there's, there's way more than the two that we're going to look at, but look at Psalm 135 as well. Psalm 135 and uh, verse number 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. So I, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, the treasure is not Christ. The treasure is Israel. And therefore, the one who is able to purchase the field, which speaks of the earth, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what, what was the price? It says in verse 44, we'll read that again, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field, which when a man found, he hideth, and for the joy thereof, and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. What did Christ pay for, for redemption? Because the field is all the earth. His life. I think that's the only interpretation that makes, that makes sense. Uh, the treasure's hit in a field, and it isn't, it isn't the treasure that he purchases. It's the field. The field where the treasure is hit. By the way, why is it hit? Why do you think in this uh, parable of the kingdom... That the treasure is is hid. Got any thoughts on that? It's my 
I will assume that because when Jesus speaks, always speaks in, in parables, in the sense that you have to make a way to, to find understanding through the scriptures to know what he's saying. So that's right. That's that's the reason for the parables. It's it's those who those who want to find the truth will be able to find it. Those those who aren't interested in truth won't. But but what is going on with Israel right now? Right, they're hid. God is not working primarily through the nation of Israel. From the time of Abraham, some might say from the time of Sinai, after Israel's exodus, up until, up until um, uh, the, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity, God worked primarily through the nation of Israel. Now he's working primarily through churches. Israel is set aside for the moment. They're hid. They're not at the forefront. And, and so it, it makes perfect sense to me to understand that. Uh, and Jesus came and he purchased the field and he paid everything he had. He gave his life for it. And in that field is a hid treasure. And that hid treasure is the nation of Israel. And uh, so um, I think that uh, the, let's see, John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came unto his own, his own received him not. And uh, uh, the treasure didn't go seeking the man. The man went seeking the treasure. Uh, Israel has never really sought their Messiah. And when he did come to, to them, they rejected him. And, uh, and it's curious, the, the context. Do you know how chapter 12 of Matthew ends? Tur turn back there real quick. Look at verse 46 in chapter 12. While he yet talked to the people, behold his mother... And his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. And one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hands towards his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. And so Jesus was severing that link according to the flesh. Israel, God's particular treasure, is hidden. And, uh, and, and even, though, even though the earth is God's by right of creation, and it's also His by right of redemption, uh, He set aside Israel, and uh, then we come to the, the pearl of great price. So let's, let's go ahead and read that. Uh, uh, how about, uh, Sister Min, would you read verse 45 and, and Krista verse 46? Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man, seeking the holy clothes. And when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So, the pearl of great price. You know that, uh, that uh, Jews, ancient Jews, uh, actually 
because oysters and clams are unclean. They actually had nothing but contempt for pearls. They considered pearls to be the uh, fruit of an unholy vessel. And so ancient Jews didn't, didn't see pearls because they didn't ever open up clams to, to eat the food in them. And so as far as they were concerned, uh, pearls were disgusting and useless. And, uh, uh, but to Gentile people, <laughs> you know, a big pearl is, is, is as beautiful as a gemstone. And uh, so, uh, pearls, they're found at the bottom of the sea, and in Scripture, the sea is always a type of the Gentile world. And uh, there's, there's really some amazing truths found in this parable. Uh, you see that the man, which again is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, was seeking goodly pearls. And uh, when man sinned in the garden, what did he do? Yeah. When God came looking for him, he was hiding. <laughs> he was trying not to be found. And God is still seeking out man. And uh, while seeking for pearls, the man found one pearl of, of great price. And it's uh, really... Uh, beyond our comprehension that any man or nation should be considered precious by, by God. Because men have spurned his love, men have, have sinned against him, and yet uh, we are valued by him so that God gave his only begotten son to pay the purchase price. And that pearl is something that is, uh, is just one thing, but it's made up of many, many, many layers. And it's the product of suffering. A grain of sand gets inside the oyster, and it causes suffering. And so the oyster will secrete uh, a mucus that eventually hardens, and it just keeps doing that until the pearl gets bigger and bigger. But unlike other gemstones, you can't cut a pearl. If you cut a pearl, it's no longer valuable. It's, it's worthless. And so it's the product of a living creature, and it exists only as a result of suffering. It's formed lowly at the bottom of the sea, and it's formed very slowly, unseen by the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God, it's a thing of great value and, and beauty. And so the pearl is, is a wonderful representation or, or simile for, for the, the church. Now, I don't say that the church right now there is no universal church right now, but there will be a universal church uh, at the rapture. When the rapture takes place, then we'll have that general assembly in church of the firstborn. And, uh, uh, but now we don't. But by the way, there's never an invisible church. Because even when the church is universal, it's still going to be visible. The kingdom, however, is invisible. Uh, the Bible stresses that in many places. Then we come quickly, because we've only got five minutes left here, the parable of the dragnet. And uh, um, let's see, verse uh, 47. Uh, if you'd read 47, I'll read 48. Uh, John uh, 49, sister, uh, men 50. 
Again the, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. Verse 48. 49. Oh, sorry, 49. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and, and sever the wicked from among the just. And shall cast them into the furnace. Okay, so there you go. We know that this uh, deals with the end of the world. And uh, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net. Now that word net there in the Greek, that's the only place in the Bible that that word for net is found. Uh, and and it is, it's, it's a really big net. The drag net is, is a net that takes multiple people, probably even multiple boats to operate. Uh, it's, not, it's not one that one person would throw into the water and be able to pull out himself. And uh, so that's why uh, you, when, they, when they people title this, they usually call it a dragnet uh, because you pull that net behind boats all the way to the shore and then pull it onto the shore. And then, and then it takes uh, more than one person to get that, that thing grounded, and, and then it, you'll have multiple people then uh, sitting down and gathering the, the good from the bad in the net and, and throwing, throwing the, keep, keeping the good and, and throwing the bad away into a furnace, burning them. And uh, so that's uh, the it, it kind of completes the prophetic picture of the kingdom of God, the parable uh, of the, the dragnet. And uh, uh, note that, that there are people involved in, in this, not, not angels. I don't think that that means that uh, in the millennial kingdom that those of us who are helping Christ administer, we're not going to be responsible for judging. He's going to judge, but we're going to do his bidding. And uh, so uh, he, he employs uh, those who do his will. And, uh, and just like we do his will now, when he says that the fields are white unto harvest, and pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would... Uh, thrust forth, send forth laborers into the harvest. And so, even at the end, uh, there are going to be those who are serving the Lord in, in that way. And so, these are all different ways, uh, these kingdom parables, they, they paint the picture for us of what the kingdom of God is like. It, it's, uh, um, it's the realm where Christ rules, but, of course, there's always uh, going to be, during this whole time, those that, that look like they're citizens of the kingdom, but never really were. And, uh, and so, uh, we don't really have time to get into the householder, you know. Uh, it, it's, that's, it doesn't really say that that's a parable, but, but it, it says the householder is some who has treasures and some old and some new and that's pretty obvious the interpretation we've, we've got we've got old doctrine from the Old Testament we've got new doctrine but we need them both uh, just because the 
the Old Testament came before the New Testament, it doesn't make it old and worn out and anachronistic and and uh, it, it's uh, we, we need it all and then you use it to, to give it out uh, I'll just uh, we'll just read this real quick and and then we'll close in prayer verse 51 Jesus saith unto them have you understood all these things and they say unto him yea Lord then he said unto them therefore every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of God is like unto a man that is an householder now scribes the, the scribes as an institution began uh, after the Jews returned and they kind of began in, in maybe even instituted under Ezra the scribe but um, a scribe is just somebody who who studies God's Word teaches it to others and uh, and so he bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old and so every one of us should be a scribe Every one of us should know God's Word well enough to be able to teach it to others. And we should know both the Old and the New Testament. And so don't let anybody ever suggest to you that the Old Testament or the, the parts of the Bible that were written specifically to Jewish people have no, no relevance for us today. That is the lie of Satan. Uh, this is all God's Word and all doctrine is given by inspiration of God, it is profitable for doctrine, all of it. And uh, so, there you go. The kingdom of heaven will. Uh, will I was thinking that we would uh, consider offenses. What would Christ teach us about offenses from next week? So, uh, brother John, would you like to close this in prayer? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the teaching of the kingdom and the understanding we gain from it. I pray that you will enable our understanding to learn how to use this knowledge in our daily walk with you. We know that your word is a light to our feet and a lamp into our a lamp into our feet and light in our path. We understand that it is the Christ and us that is the hope of glory. As we look to you and we create an intimate personal relationship with you through the scriptures is when we will know how to live our life as your word tells us the entrance of your word bringeth light and giveth understanding to the simple father i thank you that in your word you say that <clears throat> our spirit in us is the, is, the, is, is the spirit which is the breath of God that gives us understanding or knowledge or wisdom. So teach us to walk in accordance with you as we have heard that these few weeks about the kingdom. I pray that this teaching would just enter in one year, cut out on the other or in the other. I pray that these teachings will remain as a memorial as passages concluded to be scribes, people keep record of the teaching and able to transfer it to other people. As for me as a father, transfer them to my children. And for that I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.